Hello, you are listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. We record the real-life memories and perspectives of those who experience the history of Carnegie Mellon University. And for our third season of the podcast, we're looking at Steel City Outsiders and the Institutional Avant-Garde. Or... Or the story of how Oakland, our neighborhood here in Pittsburgh, emerged as an unlikely center for avant-garde and experimental arts in the 1970s. So this season, we're diving into stories about how this happened, as told by the people who were actually there. Yeah, they're stories about starting something new, about not necessarily having a plan or funding, but finding a way to do it anyway. These are stories about finding belonging and community and forging new creative forms. We're talking about avant-garde film. We're talking about punk. We're talking about electronic art. We're talking about how computers changed art and music and arts communities themselves. So today's episode is close to my heart. Oh, yeah, because you're a musician. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and today we're going to talk about electronic music, specifically the electronic music studio at the University of Pittsburgh, which was part of the avant-garde scene in the neighborhood of Oakland. So like synthesizers and computer-generated music. Yeah, exactly. And this was a huge moment for electronic music. There was a lot of change. Electronic music was becoming popularized, and we start to see this idea of music becoming post-human. Ooh, post-human. That's an interesting term. (laughs) (laughs) So what are we listening to? Uh, This is music that the filmmaker Hollis Frampton made in 1972 here in Pittsburgh. Oh, I remember Sally Dixon hosted Hollis Frampton several times at Carnegie Museum of Art for the film section. Is that where you want to start today's episode? Yeah, uh, let's actually hear a little from Sally Dixon. It is that time. Good evening. And I want to just give you a a brief rundown on, on his history in Pittsburgh which by now is a couple of years old. Um, He came here to begin with on January 21st in 1971. Uh, He screened a number of films that first time, and the word had gotten around that it was possible to shoot things in Pittsburgh that maybe were difficult to get elsewhere. And Hollis had begun hatching on this plan to do a film called The Clouds of Magellan. And for it, he needed He felt he needed sequences to be shot of dissection, uh, of a dissection or dissections, and so we got permission to shoot these at the Pitt Medical School. After that, he returned, and I think it was after that, and and shot a sequence at U.S. Steel, or maybe it was the reverse. They were kind enough to give him permission to shoot uh, at the open hearth, and so he went for two days, accompanied by several of their people, who were very helpful to him and got what I feel is some of the most beautiful footage I've ever seen unedited. Another time he came back and and went over to Carnegie Mellon University to investigate the possibility of of working with the computers, 
because it is a massive work and I think would maybe take him the rest of his life if he were to do it uh, with his own workings out. Or the hope is that it can possibly be speeded up with the aid of some of our technology and the city has been helpful in those ways. So another thing that Hollis Frampton did was visit the electronic music studio at the University of Pittsburgh to record music on their synthesizers. Sally introduced Hollis Frampton to filmmaker and musician Victor Grauer, who moved to Pittsburgh to teach at the University of Pittsburgh. And Grauer can tell the story of how these sounds were recorded. I became very involved in the whole visiting filmmaker program and got to know Hollis Frampton as well as a whole group of other very creative uh, filmmakers during that period. So anyway, Sally arranged for me to help Hollis because he wanted an electronic music for one of his films. So he came over. I think this was when we were still in the Cathedral of Learning. The Cathedral of Learning is the tallest building on Pitt's campus. It's a 42-story late Gothic revival building. And depending on which side of Forbes Avenue you're on, if you're on CMU's side, you might also know it as the Tower of Ignorance. Ooh. <laughs> Those CMU jerks. <laughs> Friendly rivalry. Friendly, yeah. <laughs> well, if you're in Oakland, you can't miss it. So I was able to set Alice up. There was a, a miniature synthesizer called the Putney that was very, very primitive but it enabled you to fool around with certain very basic electronic sounds. And I set things up on the Putney for Hollis to uh, make sounds with, and it, the sounds were sort of like variations on a coffee percolator type, type sound, which, which was very commonly used in electronic music at that time. And I set it up so he could uh, work with this joystick that was attached to the little synthesizer. And as he moved the joystick around, the sounds would change. So I set him up with that and showed him how to use it, and then he sort of took over and experimented with all kinds of different sounds. And I think he eventually made a recording of it, and then he did use it in in one of his films. I forget which one. That's great. I didn't know about the Putney. No one had mentioned that being a synthesizer that was in the studio. Yeah, that somehow got into the studio. I'm not sure who. I certainly didn't order it. I had no interest in it, but that was the simplest way for him to... uh, to do something, so that was the decision that I made, to just uh, have him work with that. So this episode will be a history of the electronic music studio at the University of Pittsburgh. But I don't really know much about electronic music. I think you're going to have to explain some things to me. And I bet some of our listeners also need a bit of an introduction. Like, what in the world is a bukla? And why a joystick? Yeah, so maybe a good place to start would be to do a short primer on electronic music. We can talk about some of the instruments. We can talk about where sounds come from. 
And I'm really excited to dig into this history because I've spent some time recording music in the current iteration of the Electronic Music Studio. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about how this sound is made, but also just the general history of the studio. So over the years, I, I have heard fragments about the studio's history, and I've always wondered who founded the studio and if there was an answer to the mystery of what happened to the Buchla synthesizer, which was one of the earliest modular synthesizers. Well, maybe we can start out with sound. Does that make sense? You know, what does electronic music sound like? And maybe you can do a couple of demonstrations. Yeah, totally. Uh, let me turn on some gear. So at a very broad level, electronic music uses electronic musical instruments, digital instruments, or circuitry-based music technology to make sound. So what are some of like the really basic sounds that you can make with these instruments? Uh, well, let's listen to a sine wave. If you saw a picture of a sine wave, it looks like a repeating S. So it's an S wave. So if I think back to high school physics, and I paid enough attention, I guess, the length of the S wave is the same as the frequency. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so this is a 440 hertz sine wave. Uh, and I should mention I dropped out of AP physics, so this, you know, I did some research here. <laughs> so it's a 44 hertz sine wave, which you may know better as an A note. So basically all notes are frequencies. Yeah, and the fundamental frequency determines the pitch of a sound. So this A note is 440 hertz. If you take it down an octave, you divide 440 by 2 and you get 220 hertz. Now... If you want the octave above 440 hertz, you multiply it by two and you get 880 hertz. So these are all A notes, but in different octaves. Now, 440 hertz doesn't just exist as a sine wave. You can hear 440 hertz on a vibraphone, a guitar, or a harpsichord. And I should say, some of these things are a little out of tune, so it's a little wobbly, but you get the idea. So just for kicks, here's a 500 hertz tone. Now, if this was a 512 hertz tone, you may recognize it as a C note. So a 500 hertz is in between a B and a C, and it is microtonal in regards to a Western tuning system. Let me turn this ramble into a concise point. The cool thing about electronic music and the advent of synthesizers that could play electronic music was that you could play any note you wanted. The notes didn't have to adhere to the notes you find on a piano. A composer could be much more precise about the pitches that they used. Oh, interesting. So a composer has a little bit more freedom with electronic instruments. That's fascinating. So what other, what other kinds of sounds can you make? Uh, you can make square waves. They sound like this. This is that same 440 hertz A note, but it's a square wave. That sounds like it's more jagged. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Uh, and if I can dip down into the weeds here a little bit more, uh, with the sine wave, you only hear the fundamental frequency. But with the square wave and some of the other waves forms that we're going to hear shortly, you also hear harmonics and overtones. So these are audible notes that are heard in addition to the fundamental frequency 
so your brain and ears are actually hearing multiple notes at the same time. Harmonic overtones are part of the reason that the same note on a piano and guitar and synthesizer all sound different. It's because you're hearing different overtone notes on each instrument. So we're hearing something that isn't there, but it is there. Yeah, and that's one of the cool things about music in general is this feeling of magic. It's intangible. Uh, it can be mysterious. Two more waves. Here's a triangle wave. And here's a sawtooth wave. Those sound totally different. And jumping into deeper water, one of the core features or tenants or things about electronic music is something called FM synthesis. This is where one wave modulates another wave. So if you have our 440 hertz sine wave modulated by a 75 hertz sine wave, the resulting waveform is going to look and sound more, how you say, gnarly. The composer Ryoji Ikeda actually released a 99 song record of modulated 440 hertz sine waves in 1999. Wait, so you can modulate a wave with a different wave that is also being modulated by a third wave? Correct. But can you modulate a wave with a different wave that is being modulated by a third wave being modulated by a fourth wave, and wait for it, being modulated by a fifth wave. Yes, totally. And then you can feed that modulation back on itself and get really out there to the point where the electronics are in a feedback loop and they have a life of their own, and it sounds something like this. So those are the basics of electronic music. And if you wanted to create electronic music in the 1960s, really your only option was to visit an electronic music studio. And the University of Pittsburgh was part of a wave of universities that built one of these studios. And you've been talking with a lot of the people who created that studio, right? Yeah. And throughout those interviews, I'm told that nothing like this really existed in Pittsburgh before. So let's hear from two composers. Barry Schrader, and Morton Sabotnik, who got all of this started. Well, I was a uh, grad student at University of Pittsburgh, and I was a musicology major. So that is Barry Schrader. Towards the end of my first year, 1969, the head of the uh, department, Robert Snow, said that he was going to be bringing Mort Sabotnik in for a year and having him set up a, an electronic music studio and ask me if I would be his teaching assistant. So this time, Morton Sabotnik was one of the more well-known contemporary composers in America. To exemplify that, Sabotnik told me a story about how people would just show up at his studio near New York University, NYU, to watch him work. I would work in my studio all night, and then at around two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock, people would just walk in, and they were from, they were from different bands. I was known as the mad scientist of the ecstatic moment. <laughs> I love the title. I never met anyone. They just walked in and sat on the sofa and they grunt from time to time, but we never had a conversation. <laughs> but, but it was this, that was populated. So they saw me working and that may have 
inspired them in some way, I don't know. Part of the reason that Subotnik was well known was that Nunsuch Records commissioned two very well-received records by Subotnik. Nunsuch started as a label that reissued European classical recordings, but in the 1960s, Teresa Stern became director of Nunsuch Records and introduced things like psychedelic album covers that riffed on the Art Nouveau style. And she also introduced contemporary classical music, which included Subotnik's records. Nunsuch was, was a really great label. So they kind of became more open to contemporary ideas. Yeah, and from there, Nunsuch released tons of recordings by the likes of Wilco, Steve Reich, Buena Vista Social Club, Laurie Anderson, Randy Newman, Katie Lang, many others. It's quite a list. Indeed. The first Subotnik record was Silver Apples of the Moon in 1967, which became kind of a hit, possibly tapping into the psychedelic atmosphere of the times. It was the first electronic composition written for the album format, and it predates another electronic record that people may be familiar with, Wendy Carlos's wildly successful album Switched on Bach, which was used as part of the score for the movie A Clockwork Orange. So Morton Subotnik was brought to Pittsburgh to advise on Pitt's music curriculum and to create the Electronic Music Studio in 1969. But in 1967, Subotnik explains that Silver Apples of the Moon created a split in the avant-garde electronic music scene. 67, Silver Apples of the Moon came out. It was really big. <laughs> it was really big at that time. Um, I guess it still is to some extent. It split the avant-garde at that point, especially the technological avant-garde, in the sense that the main person in technology and music was Milton Babbitt. Now, Milton Babbitt was a composer who taught at Princeton. Babbitt was also involved in electronic music. In the early 1960s, he was asked to work with the RCA Mark II sound synthesizer, which was housed at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center. Milton's view was that they were experimenting. They were composers, but they were not, they didn't care about the audience. Who cares who listens? What we do is going to affect the future, scientific experiments of some sort. And that didn't seem right to me. I was looking for what I called, and I still call, a new, new music. The new technology should be able to bring us a new, new music. And my, my view was completely different from his. Mine was that our role was sort of experimental in the sense that I wasn't going to create a new, new music. I couldn't because I had too much music in my background. I had spent four or five hours a day from the time I was eight years old all the way through. And you know, if you put that kind of dedication in, you've got so much memory of a whole lot of stuff that you can't make a new, new music. You're going to be adding to the music. You're going to be making a new music, a new old music. Wait, does he say new, new music? Yeah, so there's a term called new music, which I would say varies in definition depending on who you talk to, but it is basically avant-garde music from 1945 onwards. So can you give me some examples? So avant-garde music was multiple things. There was something called serialism, which would include composers like Arnold Schoenberg and the early works by Stockhausen. 
there was John Cage and his chance-based compositions, like when he used star charts to determine notes on the page. And then there's also the introduction to minimalism, which can be heard in Steve Reich's music or the many movie scores that Philip Glass made like Candyman and Truman Show. So some people might say that new music starts in 1950. Some might say it is ever-changing, keeping up with the latest developments by living composers in contemporary classical music. So a new new music is something beyond that. So when I got started with this whole thing, which was in the late 50s and into the early 60s, my notion was that there will be a paradigm shift. There, there will be a huge segment of the population that will be musically literate. There was only a tiny portion because you can only hear music if you were there, right? And now you're going to be able to hear music from everywhere. That would create a literacy almost like the printing press did. In fact, I thought, I thought they were parallel at that point. The printing press made possible for everybody to read. And the big thing was, if you, I don't want to make, I don't know if you should use this or not, but I don't care, it doesn't matter. But Milton Babbitt to me was like the, the Catholic priests the original language was was Latin, they said, which of course wasn't true. But but you you can't read it. You were the only ones who could read it because we know better. That was the uh, the tradition. Fine arts in general were the equivalent to the sacred. That's the problem, I thought, and so we needed to change that. So if I'm understanding him correctly, at this time universities were the main hub for this kind of music. And they can dictate how this kind of music is created, performed, distributed, and understood. Having access to recorded music, often with liner notes, provides information directly to the listener. Yeah, and for instance, around this time, Nonsuch Records started releasing the Explorer series, which is something I absolutely love. And that exposed American audiences to the music of Bali and Ghana and Japan. These records were released alongside of Subotnik's electronic music. So people's understanding and exposure to different kinds of music was wider, and maybe that would make folks more accepting of even newer sounds, whatever those may be. So just like we saw with avant-garde film, there was an audience for something new. And part of the equation to create this new, new music was the advent of the Buchla synthesizer. The Buchla, which has seen a great reemergence in the past five to ten years, was created by Don Buchla with input from Subotnik. When I started working with Buchla on what became the Buchla, I gave him the direction that we had to create something that was capable of producing anything. And so we just start with sound, and, and we had to be able to create a very complex piece in old music with it, but that would be hard, just as hard, if not harder, than anything else you could create. So that this new group that would be now musically aware, some of them would become interested in being creative, but this was going to be done by the ear and the new technology. And it would be a new, new music. It would be a new genre. 
And I couldn't have been right, more right about that whole thing as it came into being. Actually, it started with disco, and that affected huge numbers of people. So there you have it. Disco was a new, new music, along with other music innovations like Detroit techno, Chicago house, and early hip-hop in the 1980s and 90s. So now we have the synthesizer, the first piece in the puzzle. Let's see how that played out when Morton Sabotnik founded Pitt's electronic music studio. So why I came is because they invited me, 69. Yeah, I came in 69, January 69, and went through the calendar year. So I was at the second semester and the first semester in the fall. Whoever was in charge... That person in charge would be Robert Snow. ...asked me to come and suggest a way to do a new music program at the university. So Sabotnik was asked to think about reshaping the music program. He didn't ask for an electronic music, but he knew I, I would include that. It seemed like a good opportunity to do something meaningful. So I, I said, I can do it if I come every, I don't know what it was, every two weeks and spend some four or five days. They just paid for my back, back and forth to New York in addition to the salary they were giving me for it. And so that's how it, it came about. That's a long answer for that, but... Sabotnik was still based in New York, so he traveled back and forth from New York to Pittsburgh throughout 1969. Barry Schrader started at Pitt as a grad student in 1968. He studied musicology and was composing for acoustic instruments, but he had been interested in electronic music for a good while. Actually, my first experience was when I was 10 years old going to see Forbidden Planet, and that's the first time I heard electronic music, which is probably true of a lot of people around that time, and I was fascinated with it. So Forbidden Planet, which was released in 1956, sparked a lifelong interest in electronic music. And years later, Barry Schrader started working in Pitt's electronic music studio. It wasn't a huge studio for the time, but of course, I thought it was terrific, never having experienced anything before. The center of the studio was a Buchla 100 system, fairly large. It was two boxes, as I remember. And at that point, Buchla had sold the 100 system to CBS Instrument, which had also just bought Fender. When Barry mentions CBS, this is the same CBS as the broadcasting company. In the 1960s, CBS Musical Instruments was a division of CBS, and they were accumulating instrument companies like Fender, Steinway, and Rhodes Electronic Pianos, and they acquired Don Buchla's synthesizer. So Sabotnik ordered the Buchla from CBS for Pitt's new studio. Because I had ordered it, I went out to visit them in Los Angeles. They flew me out, and I wanted to make sure they were doing it right, because you couldn't order modules. You, you were going to order their version of what it should be. And I wanted to make sure that was okay. And I said, you know, you're making a mistake about this. The, one of the basic things is that you should be paying him to keep making new modules to put it. No, they said, you don't understand what a musical instrument is. You don't change it all the time. I said, this isn't a musical instrument. <laughs> it's a whole different idea about how to make an instrument. So we got into this big 
battle. Uh, and so I said, okay, well, that's what Pittsburgh will get. They'll get your version of what a musical instrument is. And I gave up on that. So I keep hearing this word module. What is that? Well, I've never played a bukla, but the bukla synthesizer is essentially a system of modules, where a module is a component that creates or processes a sound. You connect these modules together with cables to create a system. So an example of a module is a sine wave oscillator, like we talked about early in the episode, and these make audible sine waves. There was also a white noise generator, a spring reverb, and a pulse generator. So by connecting these modules together, you can create sounds that a single module could not create. Modules are, I think, the beautiful part of these machines. So when Sabotnik says that the bukla isn't an instrument, I mean, it sounds like an instrument, right? Yeah. The modular nature of how you can configure a bukla allows the bukla to be essentially a different instrument every time you add or take away certain modules. It's important to remember that when the bukla was invented, you could buy the bukla system or you could buy a Moog system, which was another modular synth, but there really wasn't anything else. So fast forward to today and there are tons of people and companies making modules. Here in Pittsburgh, there's a company called Pittsburgh Modular. So you could buy one of their drum modules and hook that up to a bukla and have a totally different instrument. So depending on how you combine these modules, you could create an infinite number of new instruments. It kind of makes me think of what Sabotnik said earlier about new, new music. Even the idea of an instrument, we have to throw it out the window to create new, new music. Yeah, and from talking with Sabotnik, it sounds like module design was a point of tension with CBS Musical Instruments. On the one hand, you have the synthesizer builder as a kind of artist, this person building a machine for the creation of sound. And then on the other hand, you have a company trying to make a sellable product. Yeah, a modular synthesizer sounds like it's very different than any other instrument that CBS was selling. Let's say like Fender guitars. So CBS is trying to do two things at once. They want to standardize a modular non-instrument, and also they want to mainstream electronic music and the tools to create electronic music. So CBS is speculating that electronic music will be a bigger thing in the future if they provide more bootless. And as I think we're gonna see, when you try to implement things too quickly, sometimes it can be a little bit clunky. Bukla never made a model of anything. He came out with the final version before trying it, and then he'd always find he made mistakes, so he had to make a new module. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that they weren't doing it that way. So, oh no, we have proofing. He said, the guy who builds it, analyzes it, and does a proofing of it. Uh, I said, that's like me proofreading my own music. I said, that's impossible. You just don't understand anything. I said, well, don't ask me anymore. So that was the end of my visit to CBS Musical Instruments. And sure enough, I, whenever it arrived in, in um, we must have ordered the first one. And when it arrived, it didn't work. And I had to fly back and prove to them it didn't work. And then we got one that worked finally. <laughs> 
So Barry Schrader also made a trip to L.A. to work out some issues with the Buchla. They weren't really quite on top of making this stuff. So at one point early on, there was uh, a serious uh, problem. I think some modules burned out. And actually, they flew me and the system from Pittsburgh to L.A. with the system. They fixed it over a period of three days, and then we flew back. So that was that was a problem. The Buclo was the centerpiece of the studio, but there were other items as well. Other than that, there were two tape recorders. They were a quarter-inch half-track stereo machine, so they were good quality. And then there were several microphones, and I think that was basically it at that point. There was a piano in the studio, but in terms of electronic equipment, I think that was probably it. So now that the studio is built, what happened? The big problem initially was finding out how to use the equipment. I mean, I had never used any of this kind of stuff before. I had experience in dealing with tape recorders because when I was 10, my father bought me a stereo tape recorder and I had a Gibson Girl splicer and I would play around, you know, making tapes. And I even did some projects when I was in high school using this tape recorder. So I was familiar with that, but I had never dealt with any analog electronic music equipment. So I had to learn it before I could even begin to to compose. And then once I had gotten the basics down, I would stumble around trying to figure out how to put a piece together. There weren't any manuals at that time. CBS had put out a little booklet that explained the 100 modules. So I used that to get, you know, basic concepts. So Mort would come in for about three days every other week and teach his classes and then teach me about using the equipment. And then I was supposed to teach the other people in the class. So Schrader taught classes and he worked on his own compositions, which included a few interesting projects like a lost George Romero film score. I never met Romero, but there were two people that were working on the film. It was called Labyrinth. They came to me and asked me to compose music for two scenes in the film, which I did. They brought the film with them and I watched just a scene and then composed the music for it and gave it to them. And they gave me a contract I guess my pay would have been part of the gross, which is a a bad contract to sign, but I didn't know what I was doing. But the film was never released. I don't know what became of the film or the music or anything else. Schrader also composed music for Otto Pina's Sky Ballet, which was a performance at the Three Rivers Arts Festival in 1970. There was a Pittsburgh Arts Commission that decided to commission Otto Pina, who was a a famous avant-garde sculptor at the time, to do this sky ballet, which involved these large balloon uh, sculptures. So picture seven massive helium-filled balloons, 1,500 feet long, 
stretching over the Fort Duquesne area of Point State Park. It was at night, and bright lights illuminated the arcing balloons that were at least 40 to 50 feet high. It was pretty spectacular. There are a few photos online if you want to take a look. The performance was done at Point Park. They asked me to do the, the music for it. So I created several different tracks of music, and I hired somebody at that time to work with me to do the mechanical stuff. And what we did was uh, we put the music on repeater cartridges. You know, they, they were like eight-track cartridges before eight-track cartridges were available. It's the kind of thing that radio stations used back then and actually for many years after that. And so we had multiple stations in the park, and these would be connected to speakers that were elevated, and they were on turntables so that they would spin around, you know, during the, the performance to create a kind of Doppler or multiple Doppler effect. So it went off fairly well. I think there were some mechanical problems, as I recall, with the speakers turning properly all the time. But the, the performance went off fairly well. So there is a story that a CMU student was actually lifted into the air by one of the balloons. But I think maybe it was on purpose. <laughs> Back at the University of Pittsburgh, Sabotnik set up a recurring concert series to showcase avant-garde music. A press release from the University of Pittsburgh announced a December 5, 1969 concert featuring two works from Sabotnik, along with John Cage's cartridge music and Mel Powell's Immobile. And Sabotnik also gave classes in the studio. There were about 10 people, maybe 12, in Mort's studio class. One of these early students was Willard Van de Bogart, who, if you remember, founded the New Cinema Workshop in Episodes 1 and 2 of this podcast. So Oakland was a hub for overlapping creative activity. Willard Van de Bogart, who at that time was making short experimental films. In fact, one of the pieces I did called Serenade in the Pit Studio he used as the soundtrack for one of his films. So classes continued in line with the academic calendar. After Morton Sabotnik's year was up, George Shapiro ran the studio, followed by Victor Grauer, followed by Frank McCarty. So once things got going, activity at the studio was pretty constant. Avant-garde and electronic music were growing in popularity. And just like CBS Musical Instruments, Pitt was anticipating this and putting resources toward teaching and new technology. There's a fun quote from Robert Snow, who, if you remember, was the person who hired Sabotnik. In a 1971 article, he says, I think it's criminal to turn out students who have 50 years ahead of them and not expose them to these things which they will have to cope with in their professional lives. Electronic music is here to stay. Yeah, the university was a hub for creative exchange and access to synthesizers and other technology, especially when computers came into the mix just a few years later. These new technologies created uncertainty because synthesizers risked becoming outdated every few years, you know, a phenomenon I think we're all familiar with. 
An instrument like a violin doesn't really have this problem. Yeah, and in the 1970s, Wayne Slauson became an important figure at the electronic music studio in part because he introduced computers. Wait, so who is Wayne Slauson? Oh yeah, I should say. Uh, Wayne Slauson ran the Pitt Department of Music from 1973 well into the 1980s. He experimented in the late 1960s with computer-generated music and was perhaps most known for a piece composed at MIT, which was called Wishful Thinking About Winter. So Wayne Slauson was an enthusiast for electronic, electroacoustic, and computer music. He wrote a pretty well-known program called Sintao, which was an adaptation of a computer speech synthesizer that he used for music composition. So Slauson hired composer Robert Morris to oversee the electronic music studio. And this is a different Robert Morris from the one affiliated with the Robert Morris University in Pittsburgh, right? Yes. Robert Morris, the composer, took a tenure-track position in the Department of Music at Pitt, and he thought it wise to expand the studio's synthesizer offerings. But at this point, I was uh, appointed to run the studio, and I knew that we needed a better synthesizer, a more accurate one, so we bought an ARP 2500, which was a large device which had a matrix pinboard on it, and you would connect the modules um, above the pinboard together on the lines which you represented outs or buses, and you could interconnect things in a very nice way. So the ARP 2500 offered two things that the Buchla couldn't do. Number one, it could sustain a pitch for a long time. And two, you could play notes via the ARP's keyboard. So if you want to play an A note, you press the A key. On the Buchla, there was no A key. Yeah, and so now the electronic music studio had both the bukla and the ARP, and students could use both for different types of musical expression. So for Jason Gibbs, a grad student at Pitt, the bukla held a certain magical quality. That was a fascinating instrument because it did not really have a keyboard. You got these patch cords to connect various modules of oscillators, filters, ring modulators, and it had something like a keyboard that you could plug it into, but you basically had to invent every note yourself. You could not go to some pre-existing scale or anything. Around 1976, Robert Morris also got a new mixer for the studio, along with another key piece of equipment. At the same time, computer synthesis was kind of finally coming into its own. It was very, very cumbersome. And of course, if you made a mistake in your programming, you'd have to wait through the whole cycle of getting that digital analog conversion happening. But at the time of the late 60s, computer synthesis was not very useful because the amount of space that sound needed was very large compared to what was available. You might remember, I don't know if you're this old, but uh, at that time, the PDP-11, a mini computer, had only 64K of memory. Now, if you remember back to Cut Pathways Season 2, we talked a little bit about the Digital Equipment Corporation PDP-11 computers. PDP-11s were a breakthrough because they were relatively small computers and relatively easy to program. And Pitt's Electronic Music Studio acquired one for the purpose of making music with the computer. If you think about computers and music, the technology goes back to the 1950s and lives within the field of computer science. A lot of work was done at Stanford by Max Matthews and John Chowning, 
and others. Advancements in speech recognition technology also fed into computer music programs. And by the late 1970s, computer programs were able to play synthesizers. It stood over five feet tall, bigger than your average file cabinet. That was the computer. And so we bought one. And now my colleague Wayne Slauson was a very apt computer programmer. So when Wayne Slauson was at Pitt, he was refining his Sintal computer program. And it was called Sintal, S-Y-N-T-A-L. And Slauson was updating it to talk to the studio's new ARP synthesizer. Here's Robert Morris. He was starting to work on a better version of it and using the ARP synthesizer as the sound output. Uh, at that point, we got the PDP-11, and he could do all the programming on that, and then we would uh, send the output of the PDP into the ARP synthesizer, and then we'd get sounds that would come out. So you could um, command so much voltage to go to a filter, so much voltage to go to an oscillator. You could have it glissando between two points there, which is what I found really interesting. So what Jason Gibbs is saying is that you could write a computer program that plays the synthesizer. So this means that you could write music that cannot be played by a human. It expands the range of what a composition could be, because now it can be post-human. Ooh, that sounds ominous. Yeah. It was actually a big concern for musicians in the 80s. They thought they might lose their jobs to computer programming. Well, back to Robert Morris. It wasn't very successful in many ways, but still we were able to make sound in a rather quick way without much worry about uh, memory because the memory was only of the control voltages and not the compositions themselves. Now, later on, of course, things got a lot better. And by 1990, uh, there were lots of synthesis packages that were quite usable. But way back in 1965, 1970, there was very little computer usage that was at all, uh, you know, commodious of composing, except this one way of having the PDP generate control voltages. So a person who kind of split the difference between the technical and musical sides was Roger Dannenberg. Dannenberg received his PhD from CMU in 1982, and as he put it, he was a key carrying member of Pitt's electronic music studio. Wayne Slauson at the University of Pittsburgh showed me what he was doing, and I was interested, and I think, I think Wayne uh, very shrewdly said, oh, here's a <laughs> computer science guy from Carnegie Mellon. Maybe I can get him interested in this uh, computer stuff that I'm doing. So Dannenberg helped Wayne Slauson improve the Sintal program. And in exchange, he had free reign in the electronic music studio. And so I was really interested in that stuff. And I, what Wayne could offer me is, is this playground to come in and play with. And so we agreed that I would have access to the to the studio and I'd use it at least officially to improve his language. And I had a lot of ideas about how the PDP-11 software could could be much more interactive and help you um, you know test things and debug things and and tweak things. If something wasn't quite right, it was a real pain to go back to the library science building and and get online and and alter your program and then come back to the studio and download it again. You know, maybe you could just uh, 
scale some things differently and alter things uh, interactively with the mini computer. So that's kind of the, the thing I worked on. But mainly I remember just having access to these uh, Buchla synthesizers and an ARP synthesizer and playing around with them. You know, it sounds like a lot changed in avant-garde music in the 1970s. Yeah, as the 1970s turned to the 1980s, there were a lot of advancements happening at the same time. At Pitt's Electronic Music Studio, Wayne Slauson and his students were continuing to use the PDP-11 computer to make music. And we've seen that the Buchla and the ARP synthesizers are allowing composers to create sounds that could not be performed on traditional instruments. And now, the PDP-11 computer is giving composers the option to write music that a human couldn't physically perform because maybe the music is either too fast or it's too complicated. So what exactly does post-human music sound like? that sounds pretty wild. It's maybe not for a general audience, though. Yeah, possibly not. But, I mean, if you look at post-Motown Detroit, uh, techno is emerging in the early 80s. Techno consists of drum beats that are too perfect. They're more perfect than a human drummer could play. And throughout the 80s, electronic music is taking over the top 40 charts. So I used to go to 80s night at uh, Club Laga, I think. And... um, The soundtrack is basically all drum machines, so drummers were temporarily out of a job. So you're making me think back to some of the things we heard earlier in the episode from Morton Sabotnik. It kind of sounds like that new, new music did emerge. Yeah, I I think Sabotnik was right. If you look at disco, techno, house, and later on uh, intelligent dance music and some of the experimental uh, electronic records coming from Mego and Warp record labels. This music was, you know, happening and it was being made by younger folks. It was not necessarily the product of classically trained new music people. So was it mostly younger generations producing this kind of music or was it also multi-generational? Yeah, definitely multi-generational, but I think a lot of the innovations happened from younger people who were just discovering these instruments for the first time. They didn't have to be the originator of a genre, or they didn't have to be classically trained to get a drum machine or get a sampler and figure out how to make cool things happen. So new things became possible as the tools of creation became more accessible. And that accessibility increased way more when things went purely digital. I'm curious, what happened to the studio? Is it still around? Are the Buchla and the ARP and the PDP-11 still at the University of Pittsburgh? Well, the studio still exists. It's in a different spot, and all of the contents are different. Here's Eric Moe, who arrived at Pitt in 1989 with an explanation. 
it was all very mysterious. <laughs> I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. But I mean, one of the, the things about hiring me was one of my mandates was to set up a, a MIDI studio and just sort of change it all to a digital, because that's what I'd had experience in doing at SF State, um, which is where I was previously employed. So Eric had to change the studio from analog to digital, which included implementing MIDI-capable instruments. MIDI stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. It's a way to connect and foster communication between devices that make and control sound like a synthesizer or a computer. And Nathan Davis in particular was very keen on getting, um, you know, somebody on the faculty who could teach FM synthesis and just all the latest MIDI tools and toys and, and uh, just get everything into the, just make the transition into a purely digital space. Eric mentioned that the analog studio gear was in disarray, including a Moog synthesizer, which was similar to the ARP synthesizer. There was a portable Moog in a box upstairs, which didn't work. The Buchla? I didn't see it. I had heard about it from people in the past. Oh, I love working with the Buchla. And I, yeah, I was always asked, what, where, where did it go? And I, I don't know. The ARP? The ARP was there. The ARP was there in a bank of analog tape recorders in varying stages of decay. The mixer? The first week I was there, I believe the mixer was stolen. The PDP-11? So we got the PDP-11. Someone in computer science wanted it for a museum piece. So Eric Moe brought in some new equipment. And I just bought a bunch of stuff. Bought a DX7 2D, uh, which was the state-of-the-art FM synth at that time. And a TX802, which was a big tone generator rack, Yamaha tone generator rack that was like having eight DX7s that you could have a, like an orchestra of FM sounds and uh, got a mighty Mac Plus computer to run it all. Uh, I think I, I got an Ensonic EPS sampler, which was, had just become available, a state-of-the-art 13-bit sampler. But anyway, so I, I got all that stuff. And when I came to Pitt, I found that there was no place to put it because <laughs> there was a perennial equipment problem. I mean, a space facilities problem. There's, there's just never enough room for anything. And it's a problem we're still struggling with today, 33 years later. It's funny, when I heard the Hollis Frampton recordings from 1972, the actual sound of them isn't too far off from what I can create today with new synthesizers. And I think it goes back to those basic building blocks of electronic music. A sine wave in its pure form won't get more complicated with a new synthesizer. It is exactly what it is. One of the major changes is that things are cheaper, more accessible, and there are way more resources for learning how to use these machines. That ease of use has allowed musicians to use those simple building blocks to make much more complicated sounds. So if we think about how the ARP synthesizer was able to sustain a note where the Buchla couldn't, it's not better or worse, you just have more options. Again, 
you can be more precise with your compositional choices. Oops, sorry, Kate. I think this episode has turned into deep thoughts with Dave. <laughs> well, I definitely know a lot more about electronic music now than I did before we did this episode. So at the beginning of this story, Sally Dixon sent Hollis Frampton to Victor Grauer to make some electronic music. And we see how Oakland is becoming this avant-garde constellation of people, institutions, resources, machines, and above all, opportunities. Yeah, there's an exchange of ideas, a sharing of skills. And technology keeps advancing. Now we have AI-generated music. That is truly a post-human experience. It's not a human telling a computer what to play. The computer is composing on its own. Yeah, and here's a track I told a computer to make. Pretty good. Pretty good. Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time, we're staying local. Yeah, our story is about Carnegie Mellon University. And we will focus on the intersection of art and computers with two multi-hyphenates. Artist, programmer, musician, Dwayne Pelka, and musician, computer scientist, Roger Dannenberg. This episode was written by Catherine. And Dave. And some of the music on this episode was created by Dave, but Barry Schrader also graciously provided permission to use excerpts from his albums Lost Atlantis and the Barnum Museum, both available on Bandcamp. And that's what we're listening to right now. We also used a free sample pack of Buchla samples from the YouTube channel 100 Things I Do. And at the beginning of the episode, you heard Hollis Frampton's experiments with the synthesizers at the Electronic Music Studio at Pitt, courtesy of Hollis Frampton Collection, Harvard Film Archive, Harvard College Library. Many thanks to the Weibel Foundation and our other generous donors for funding the oral history program and helping us do all of this work. And if you want to help us continue preserving stories like this, consider making a donation to the oral history program at Library. Also, hit subscribe so you don't miss more stories about Steel City Outsiders and the institutional avant-garde. And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. Let us know what you think. See you next time. <laughs>